In the last few weeks, protesters have taken to the streets to campaign against racial inequality. All lives matter. Blacks, whites, all lives matter. We're all human beings. There should be fairness for all of us, which means that black lives matter. Whatever your view on the social and political implications of the protests, the message is resonating widely and has therefore dredged up a thorny subject for the investment world. The role of the CEO and the role of the corporation has changed. How much does good social practice matter to companies? And to what extent are those companies accountable for social malpractice? The importance of good social image for one company in particular is something that we will be discussing with Philip Ryland in this podcast. And we'll also be talking to Phil Oakley later on about investment matters. And I have spoken to James Norrington about how all this ties into one especially hot investment topic, ESG. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. So Megan, it seems kind of strange to be talking about social justice and protest movements in the context of an investment podcast. I mean, what's going on and why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, this was actually something that was brought up in a news meeting a couple of weeks ago. and We were sort of debating whether or not we could touch on the on the Black Lives Matter protests and, and what's been happening worldwide in response to the the death of George Floyd in America. And it's difficult, obviously, to make the link between uh, an incredibly important cause and investment, which is also very important. But they do seem like very, very different things. But there is definitely a link between the two uh, the two things. Um, and at the same time as these protests have been happening, uh, SoftBank actually released a racial inequality fund or a fund that is set up to combat racial inequality. And that was how we started talking about this. And that's actually something that I will talk to James Norrington about later. But actually, it did get us thinking about about the role of, of social equality in general, not just in terms of race, but gender equality and, and, and all sorts of different things. And that's a really important part of managing business. And it's something that is, I mean, it's the S of ESG, the social, the social side of ESG. And it is very important because it can help and it's been proven to help make businesses run better. What evidence is there that that is the case? It's anecdotal to a certain extent. There are, I mean, if you follow ESG funds, uh, there are all sorts of comparisons between share price movement and good ESG scores. I tend to take them with a little bit of a pinch of salt because ESG scores are random, seemingly. People try to be completely accurate, but I mean, especially the social side, it relies so much on company self-reporting. We're doing this, we're doing that. Is it really good social practice that they're doing or are they just saying they're doing it and that's the problem I have with ESG scoring but if you I mean it's just common sense looking at companies which are performing well from a social point of view and I mean one really interesting one is Diageo which arguably isn't a particularly socially moral company it makes alcohol Uh, others would say that's very moral but not everyone but they I I would (laughs) So would I. They score extremely highly on social equality metrics because they have uh, the same amount of women on their board as they do men. They have a very diverse uh, range of people who work in senior management. They support their more junior staff very nicely and they always come up really, really well on nice place to work and things like that. And Diageo is a fantastic company. It's extremely well run. It's extremely successful. It's one of the UK's best companies. And you can see that across many, many different different sectors as well. Weatherspoons is one that repeatedly comes up for uh, the sometimes slightly questionable turns of phrase of its chief executive. But its staff are rewarded for good performance. And that's a, very, that's a, that's a great way of running a company. And maybe that falls slightly more into governance than it does the social aspect. But they're given good opportunities at Weatherspoons. There's, a, there's an excellent shareholder scheme, um, employee shareholder scheme. And uh, and Weatherspoons is an extremely well-run and an extremely well-performing pub company. I mean, it's quite interesting that you mentioned governance. I'd like to come on to that, uh, the G in ESG. Um, I mean, it sounds like for Diageo to, to have got to the position where it is would have taken many, many, many years, long before this became fashionable. Uh, but we're now seeing lots of companies trying to... They seem to be mm. trying to retrofit the S onto their businesses. I mean, is this just wishful thinking on their part? Are they trying to change too much, too fast? Um, and, you know, in, in some respects, potentially damaging their businesses. 
Mm. And for what reason are they doing it as well? That's the, th- that's the thing I think. Are people doing it just so they can match the ESG scores? Or is it, are they doing it just so they can spin a good message? Because that's the wrong reason for good social practice. And that's a, something that we've I've talked about with both Philip and with James in the context of Nike, which is an extremely successful company. It's doing a lot for racial equality. It, it supports a lot of black athletes and and uses those in the social media campaigns. But is that the right way of doing good social, a, a good social practice? Because it's also been called up for using sweatshops. So does it still does it still use sweatshops? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I know, I, know. I know over the years, a lot of, you know, um, consumer goods companies have obviously transferred a lot of manufacturing to the Far East. I'd imagine there's still quite a lot of labour that's used out there. I and mean, it's, it's not the most highly paid labour. And I can't imagine the conditions are always brilliant. So, you know, there does seem to be a bit of a gulf between between what companies say they would like to be and, and what they actually are. If you dig yeah. beneath the surface and what they do, what they do. Yeah. On the surface, what they sort of using flashy names and saying we're doing all this wonderful stuff, is it actually the same in practice? And, and yeah, and Weatherspoons is an extremely interesting example of that. As a sports direct, they are both often repeatedly hammered for poor social practice and governance. But really, if you dip under the surface of both of those companies, they support their staff far better, or they support good performance, and they support loyal staff far better than some of some other companies. I mean, isn't that what this ultimately boils down to? You know, business performance. So, if the S, if putting the S in your business makes it perform better, then that's the right thing to do. Surely, the thing to do that any business should should do is is to employ the right people and put them in the right jobs and treat them in the right way, regardless of whether they're black, white, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You would think, but obviously that hasn't always happened in the past, which is why there are protests at the moment. But I think in the Western world, things are changing, certainly, but maybe then maybe they're not yet there yet. But that's why ESG can be a good thing, because it can help with it can create positive change in business, because ultimately what these companies are doing is trying to make money. And if and this is, again, something that we'll discuss more with James, if these if companies can see that they'll make more money because they're getting doing well on ESG metrics, then, yeah, maybe they might start being more socially minded, which which would be a good thing. I mean, is, but is, yeah, the is, reason shouldn't be just for good ESG scores. Is, I mean, is getting the good SG score important now to companies because it gets them included in, uh, in, so, you know, certain, in certain tracker funds? Yeah. So, so you know, they're, they're basically just doing that to, to access capital more cheaply. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Again, is that the right reason or the wrong reason? You know, again, I mean, we've talked about ESG being a label that's being applied willy-nilly uh, and that the, the way of measuring it is not that that you know, refined just yet. So, so basically, companies are doing this just so that they're investable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, I think that's the wrong way. That's the wrong reason to be trying to be more socially minded. Um, but, yeah, it's it also seems to be like the actions that are being taken just for ESG scores or just to say, well, look at what good good stuff we're doing. That actually undermines what I think the whole protests are about, which is actually a fundamental change rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. I saw a fantastic uh, clip from uh, the historian Neil Oliver, and he was talking about, you know, you've, you've actually got these protests going on which are against slavery that happened in the past. Um, what, you, what you actually uh, see now is, you know, people actually recording those, those protests on their mobile phones. Um, and actually the, some of the raw ingredients that go into a mobile phone, cobalt in particular, are mined in appalling conditions by what essentially amounts to modern day slavery. So, so you know, again, are we looking in the wrong direction uh, at yeah. all of this? And, you know, certainly the mining and oil and gas industry, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're right in the middle of this. Um, mm. I think Philip talks about this later. Um, Philip makes a really interesting point about this because I was asking him um, about why why social image matters more to some companies than it does to others. And he makes the point that for some companies, social, their social image is so bad anyway that really people just accept that mining companies, oil and gas companies, and also to a certain extent the big tech companies are bad. I mean, Facebook, I think, is a really interesting example of a company which its social image is it's pretty appalling. And last year, Mark Zuckerberg spent a lot of time in front of the Senate trying to answer questions about why data, personal data, was mined by a company that wasn't actually associated with Facebook, but was using Facebook's data, Cambridge Analytica, personal information being dredged out of out of that tech company. And Facebook's share price rose, I think it was about 30% in the days that 
Mark Zuckerberg was in front of the Senate. People don't seem to care as much or it doesn't seem to matter as much to the share price. Investors don't seem to care as much if the company is already has a bit of a bad reputation, which Facebook certainly has. Mm, absolutely. I, I remember as well that not too long ago, there were a lot of question marks over Apple's use of uh, Foxconn to ma- manufacture its phones out in China. A lot of uh, employee suicides, I think, was the, the big problem there. Mm. Um, you know, China's a really interesting example when we talk about you know, social uh, uh, aspects of investing because China's not behaving too well at the moment. And yet every single company in the world seems to want to go there because it's such a huge market. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. We're going to be looking at this in a few weeks, I, I think. But... Um, I, I struggle, I really struggle with the idea that, that we are moving towards this amazing ESG world when companies are also looking at China in particular. We've got a big supplement this week and I've written about China. Um, uh, because, because China is, is, is known for intellectual property theft. Uh, it's, it's cracking down on democracy uh, in, in uh, Hong Kong. It, it's right in the middle of, you know, accusations of, of mistreatment of significant portions of its, its minority populations. I mean, you know, yet companies seem to be able to turn a blind eye to it and, and that's all fine. Yeah, and there's a lot of companies which have prioritised growth in China over everything else because there is growth on offer in China where there isn't so much in the US and in Europe. And is there going to come a time in the near future probably that the ethics of China undermine their investment case there. I mean, if they're looking for growth, then China's going to be the place to be. But then they're going to, yeah, it's going to be harder to spin a good ethical story and a good social story, although I suppose they have been doing it for a while anyway. But yeah, China's a really interesting, It's a, I mean, it's a fascinating subject from an investment point of view. And we are going to do discuss that in a couple of weeks time we were going to do it this week but we've got an exciting interview coming up next week so we decided to hold off i know who it is quickly turn to governance now you know we we talk a lot about s but you know i i have the the feeling that a well-governed company in a well-governed company the e and the s will happen naturally um so you know if you if you run your business well uh, and you have the right process in place and the right targets the right objectives and motivations for what you're doing then the rest of it follows i mean lots of focus on the s is it not g that matters more i think it is and james with um his data bank disagrees as as you'll hear later but from just a like anecdotal common sense whatever you want to call it point of view Governance surely is the most important of the three. And surely it's also not even like this ESG thing. ESG, the G is just good investing. It's just investing in companies which are run very, very well. And there's there are a lot of them out there. They're often you look for the ones which are founder led, the ones where the chief executive isn't being paid a ridiculous sum of money, the ones where there's little disparity between the staff salaries and the management salaries ones that are investing in the right things, good quality metrics, which we talk about a lot, especially at the moment, good cash flow, good management of cash, all of these things that they relate to governance, but they're also just good companies. And if you have got a good company, then yes, it's going to be investing in the right things for the future. And actually the right things for the future are things with good social practice and good environmental practice, because realistically we are turning away. However, much people feel the need to continue to protest about these things and it's right that they do we are moving more into a society which has is is greener because we have to maybe it's not as quick as people would have liked it's not as quick as it should have been but we will get there eventually and that's why good environmental practice is the right thing to be investing in as is good social practice it reminds me of uh, uh, W.H. Smith, actually, which, I mean, it's going, obviously going through the ringer at the moment, but that's mm. not a, a problem of its own making. Um, but I remember over the years, it would, you know, you, you looked at that high street business and thought, you know, how, how is that still going? Um, but what it, what it did was a relentless focus on cost saving, you know, trimming the, the operating costs of its store base. And one way it was doing that was basically by being, making them much more energy efficient. So long before everyone else was doing it. So, yeah, actually, to run the business well and get the performance out of it that, that it wanted, it focused on making decisions that, that would actually make it a more environmentally friendly business as well. Um, yeah, I mean, W.H. Smith is, a, I find W.H. Smith a really fascinating one from um from what it invests in and yeah okay saving saving money in its lighting made its sort of shops really gray and dingy um but didn't didn't really seem to matter and it's high street business i mean it's not doing well but wh smith 
apart from the recent difficulties with travel, is actually is actually doing well, and it's yeah, it's come, that's come from good management decisions. Absolutely. Um, do we hear from Philip now? Uh, I've had a listen to your interview already. It's, it's a good one. Um, let's uh, let's roll it. Hi, Philip. Thanks very much for joining us for the podcast again. So this week we're talking about corporate image, which is a topic which has been is being discussed quite widely at the moment because of what's going on in in the wider news with the racial inequality protests which are happen, happening. And while that is a, a very pressing issue for, for everyone, there's also a very strong read across into, in, into investment and to corporate image because corporate image really, really matters. And one company that it is particularly pressing for is the US sportswear giant Nike. And yeah, you've got some, some views on that, of course. So do you want to just sort of paint the general picture of why image matters so much to Nike? Well, uh, I guess chiefly because it's the ultimate lifestyle company. Uh, if you want to think about companies which which make their corporate bucks by by peddling a lifestyle, then um, you'll be hard pressed to think of a better example of that than Nike. Uh, I mean, after all, what does it do? It makes running shoes, it makes t-shirts, it makes stuff like that. But somehow, it's created uh, a company worth 100, 140 billion dollars uh, out of that. If it was, if Nike had its prime listing on the London market, it would be the most valuable company in London. And all that is, as I say, based on selling T-shirts. Nike might argue with that, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Which, which does mean that, and, and, and the company says it itself. Brand is extremely important to it, which is why it tries to back sports stars who are who are high profile who are succeeding and also sports stars who are doing the right thing from a social perspective and one of those is Colin Kaepernick the original sports person who took the knee this was a few years back but this is obviously something that's become far more we're far more accustomed to now in the last few weeks so everyone is taking a knee but yeah so Nike backed Colin Kaepernick um, at the time and he his decision making has almost driven some some corporate decisions uh, it's, it's, it certainly has um, I mean the best example of that quite recently was that uh, Nike launched a, a running shoe called the uh, the Betsy it was based on the Betsy Rose flag and for readers who aren't aware of this, the Betsy Rose flag is an early version of the Stars and Stripes, and it's most obviously associated with American independence. And uh, last year, almost a year ago now, uh, Nikkei launched this running shoe, um, calling it the Betsy Rose flag shoe, uh, to coincide with Independence Day. However, to an extent, the Betsy Rose flag also associates, also associates with the early American Republic, which was, uh, which was, you know, at least in part based on slavery. So there were objections to that, particularly from Colin Kaepernick, and uh, the company very quickly withdrew that shoe. Um, now, whether that was a good move or not, I'm not sure. They got a certain amount of flack for withdrawing it, but on the other hand, they got a lot of applause from, uh, you know, from various other communities for doing so. It's um, it's a tiger they kind of have to ride all the time. They want to, you know, they want to be good, but they've got a they've got a pretty wide clientele to be good towards nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And it has. I mean, Nike has suffered its fair share of corporate scandals. I mean, most recently, the the Oregon project, um, and before then, Lance Armstrong. And it's very quick to move away from those the, the, those negative stories because it really, really matters to a company like that. And a company where growth, I mean, as you say, its value is is astronomical considering what it does is, is T-shirts and running shoes. Um, so, so investors are expecting growth. And that growth is only going to continue to come if, if, it's, if its customers really value the brand. So keeping that brand relevant to its customers is extremely important for a company like Nike. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Any company which came up with the uh, which came up with the the slogan the the, uh, the slogan just do it uh, has got to uh, has got to keep on top of of ace marketing. You know, it just has to be the slickest marketing operation you could imagine. Um, which uh, which you know brings challenges uh, with it. Um, it's it's kind of diversified across a wide range of sports now, so that's kind of good. But it also produces dangers because 
um, if it's diversified across a wide range of sports and a wide range of clients, therefore, customers, therefore, there's always a danger while it's keeping some customers happy, it runs the, the risk of, um, you know, uh, building the wrath of, of, of other customers. Yeah, and that's particularly relevant as, um, as it ages, as the company ages, as its consumers age. And as Nike diversifies, it needs to keep its core audience in mind and also make sure that audience remains, <laughs> remains direct, keeping, keeping its customers happy is very important. And that's an issue that's been seen in other companies. Harley-Davidson is an example, which, which got old with its customer base. It got old with its customer base, which, um, which has been good for a while. Um, presumably, it won't be good forever. Uh, you know, Harley, Harley responded by making its hogs, hogs or they, you know, if you're into bikes, then you call Harley-Davidson bikes hogs, apparently. Uh, okay, so it made its hogs bigger and wider to accommodate rather sort of, you know, rotund Americans, uh, and that revived sales, but it may not revive sales forever. Uh, an alternative strategy, of course, is to kind of try and change your image. And, um, you know, you will see that, I mean, I guess, uh, think about athletics. We're talking about Nike. Think about athlete, athletics. Think about LucasAid, Glaxo's LucasAid product. That was you know, a brilliant example of changing uh, a brand from being old and stodgy and associated with illness and and, you know, recovering from flu and stuff like that into being a brand that was associated with athleticism and youth and vigor and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, companies can, can, can do these things, can try these things. Um, and um, I guess Nike isn't sort of, Nike isn't quite there yet um, because it's still got new sports to, well, it's still got some sports, I wouldn't say to conquer, but it's still growing in some sports, like like football in particular, and it's growing in some markets, like uh, like um, well, China is the best example of that. Um, revenue in China has somehow tripled in the last uh, four or five years. Um, but um, yeah, corporate aging is is always a challenge. China actually throws up another challenge for for companies like Nike and other and other companies in America because at the moment there are obviously tensions between the two two countries and companies which aren't being seen to support support their home country support America are potentially feeling a bit of backlash especially on the political angle from the political side I mean Donald Trump isn't happy with any company which continues to do business in China and that's a decision that many companies are going to be facing in the next few months and years do they continue to push into this growth market which is China at the potential detriment of uh, of American business yeah indeed it's a tough one um, I mean let me see now I'm looking at some figures here revenue in China has gone from 2.6 billion to 6.2 billion in the last five years Revenue in North America has gone from 13.7 billions to 15.9 billions. Okay, so in China they've added um, slightly more revenue than they've added in North America. Uh, China is catching up and catching up fairly rapidly. Uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one, particularly. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's a, a tough one, particularly while Donald Trump is the president. Uh, Donald Trump, incidentally, who had the Betsy Ross flag um, on his podium when he um, when he took his initial presidential inaugura inauguration, that might be part of the reason why there was so much um, controversy when they launched uh, when Nike launched that particular shoe. Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, um, but you're absolutely right. Companies have to make choices, and you can imagine that in not too many years' time, China may be almost as important as North America anyway. Um, and by which time, hopefully, um, North America will have an, uh, another and perhaps a more sympathetic president. One never knows. That could go either way. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Who, who knows with that? Well, one final point to, just to make just quickly is that obviously we, are, we have focused on, on Nike. It's a, it's a fascinating company. But one reason why they, all this issue is particularly prevalent with Nike and its peers is because it's consumer facing and we have seen other examples of uh, of other companies which have had major controversy uh, Facebook potentially being a very recent one I mean yes that's a consumer facing company but it makes money via ads rather than from its consumers um, from its actual users BP and its oil spill Rio Tinto recently and and um, and mining disasters 
these kind of controversies don't seem to matter quite as much to the companies which which are not consumer facing. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. Re BP, I mean BP, you know that that was almost like uh, an existential thing, but with uh, with Rio Tinto, uh, very much so. Um, you know, this is a controversy which has arisen in the past month or so. Uh, Rio Tinto. <laughs> destroyed a sacred site for, I shouldn't laugh, uh, but there's some bad humor, I suppose, associated with it. Rio Tinto destroyed um, a sacred site for Aborigines in Australia. Um, and first of all, it had permission to do this, um, theoretically. Uh, and first of all, it kind of said, well, look, you should have objected more. It said to the Aboriginal, Aboriginal community, look, you should have objected more. Otherwise, you know, we would have stopped. Um, but now it's kind of backtracked and it's apologising and it will uh, it will have an investigation and it'll probably pay over money and so on and so forth. But you're right, this has had absolutely no effect on the share price whatsoever. Uh, the share price has risen to like 25% uh, in the period uh, that this has been happening. Um, the moral of this, I suppose, is that you know a company can only protect the reputation it has, not the reputation that it wants to have. And if you're a miner, then sad but true you probably don't have a very good reputation anyway, which isn't, uh, that's not a reason to sort of go out and destroy things. But it is uh, it is a reason why share prices don't get punished very much when companies go and make almighty great mistakes and blow something up that they shouldn't have done. I know, that's a really, that's a really interesting point. Well, thanks, Philip. That was a really good, really interesting discussion. Good to speak to you again. Okay, many thanks. Well, that's a really great interview, Megan. Yeah, it was really interesting. It was really good fun. I, yeah, Philip has... Uh, wealth of history knowledge which um on on everything even though he's not 100 percent sure of the how you say nike but he did have a reason for that and it also comes down to history it was because he said that when he was at school he was learning about a goddess whose name is spelt like that and he was taught that it was said nike um which is why he now calls the company nike nike so it's all it all comes down to history philip I think Philip's going to be writing a lot more uh, for our educa- education section, isn't he? As well? Yes, hopefully, yeah. He's uh, because yeah, because he, he knows so much about the origins, and actually, that's really important. And that's, actually, it all comes back down to the social side of stuff as well. That looking back at the origins of things is, is is what people are doing now, and and it's very relevant in business too and investment. Indeed, I mean, it's interesting, you know, thinking about origins. Um, if you look at the stock market and many of the companies on it and, you know, many of the investment trusts that have been around for, you know, 100 years or so, you know, if we are trying to erase this past and the wrongdoings of the past, you wouldn't have much of a stock market left. <laughs> I mean, is this, is, is, is this, I mean, I, I mean, this, where does it end? Um, and, and should these companies be, you know, apologising for their past or making reparations for, for the way that that wealth was created? I mean, what, what, what should happen? I mean, I, I just wonder where this ends sometimes. Yeah. No, it's a, it's hard, it's hard to tell, and I mean, I don't know, know what the right answer is. Um, I'm sure people have lots of opinions on what the right answer to that question is, but surely you would think that as long as companies are investing properly for the future and responsibly for the future, that's the right way to go. And we'll now hear from James, who talks about how investors can do that. Hi, James. Thanks very much for joining us. So ESG is something that you have talked about a lot we as a magazine talk about it a lot but you have a particular passion for it at the moment do you want to just explain briefly what ESG investing is and especially in the context of what we're talking about in this podcast the the S is especially interesting Hi, Megan. Um, ESG uh, stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, as as everybody knows. Um, And it's really the idea that that investors, um, they want to see their money doing good. And and actually, some of the the research um, and the empirical evidence recently is suggesting that that that, um, does well for your portfolio as well. Responsible investing has been around for for probably a couple of decades, but it's really taken on um, added impetus now. On the environmental side, um, you know, the, the climate emergency um, since, since the, the Paris Agreement in 2016, uh, governance has always been with us. But, but oddly enough, is is the, there's the least correlation between index providers on that. And, and obviously, um, with, with what's going on um, around the world with Black, Black Lives Matter um, and you know the response of companies to the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, the social element is, is coming more and more into focus at the moment. Yeah, that social bit is, I mean, it's been particularly relevant in the last few weeks, as you say, with the Black Lives Matter, but yeah, also with how companies are treating their staff uh, during coronavirus. And it's something that many companies are called up for 
quite quite regularly. It's interesting that investors now have more have a way of investing in companies which are being socially responsible because the the funds that run ES, well, ESG funds try and they do try and quantify all three of those points. The social one in particular for me, I, I, I find that it's a really difficult thing to quantify. How do you tell whether a company is being socially responsible? Well, it is it is very difficult, um, and there's there's several strands to it, of course, um, and and some of them, uh, some companies um, are good at one thing and poor at another, um, and, and that that works across the the interaction between the three elements of ESG, um, and and it also um, within different uh, sort of sub elements, if you like, within social. I mean, you, you might have um, have a have a wonderful sort of right on branding strategy. Um, so, for example, you know, we, we talk about Nike and Adidas. Um, they, they were the first, you know, given the importance of, the, of their branding campaigns, uh, you know, they, as well as um, sort of you know, Nike was built by Michael Jordan, um, although he was famously, as anyone who's seen um, uh, The Last Dance, he, he was famously a very apolitical and was criticised by members of the black community for that. But, but you know, um, black athletes have been hugely important in the growth of these brands. Uh, Adidas have got uh, you know, Paul Pogba now, sort of probably one million Instagram followers. Or, uh, and, and then the way that, that, that brands are, are reaching is through their... Um, it's, it's, through, it's through their athletes' um, social media profiles, um, so they have to be on brand. But then, on the other flip side of that, well, you know, Nike, Adidas, you know, they've had terrible scandals with um, sweatshops. Now you've got uh, companies there. Um, if Black Lives Matter so much, is it just um, is it is it just sort of um, Black Lives in um, in, in developed countries uh, where people uh, there's high media presence, social media presence? Uh, or is it is it sort of uh, people from black and ethnic minority uh, uh, who who are actually making these um, these products? Um, so the scoring is difficult, and there's very little uniformity between um, uh, between sort of index providers as well. There's there's not much. Uh, the correlations are quite weak um, on on the on the social strand, and even weaker on governance. Oddly enough, um, which is funny, but but um, but that's possibly you'd expect sort of with accounting rules that to be the the same, but but because it includes things like board structure, um, uh, yeah, you you might have sort of a, there's and, and some things may be counted as social by one provider and governance as another. For example, you know if you're sort of you know, women on boards, so it's uh, it's uh, so there's there's a lot of disparity there to get access to to, to ESG. There's, there's different funds which use which will use different benchmarks as well. So as well as obviously the funds. Um the issue that the funds have in bundling their companies in into their funds, I mean, whether they're active or passive, in picking the companies that 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 are represented in these ESG funds, they also really rely on the company's self-reporting. I think that's why Nike and Adidas are really interesting examples, because, as you say, are they being socially responsible for the sake of their brand or because they're genuinely socially responsible? And if it is just for the sake of their brand, that arguably means they're not being socially responsible. So investors are maybe piling into these funds thinking that they're doing doing good but really it's not a lot of what the a lot of what some companies are doing not all companies obviously are not for altruistic factors they're because they want to make their brand look healthy and and that's a real issue with ESG because it is so difficult to to quantify and you are so reliant on companies self-reporting well this is obviously where um, asset managers and stewardship comes into it interestingly uh, iShares have launched sort of six new ETFs in the US in the last week, um, and they've got two which are sort of um, ESG advanced, where there's a real stronger tilt towards companies that do well. So that's an example of the passive side. Uh, on the active side, then you're you're really looking at you know at how your asset manager, what they're doing um, in terms of voting rights and asserting, you know, what they think a, a company should do um, to, to be responsible. Otherwise, you know, it's very easy. I think you could just look at a, a benchmark. So this is a point about why ESG investing can be a positive thing, because it can, it could, it has the potential to create change in in corporate. Because if companies are not going to get investment because they are not being socially responsible, they could be more inclined to be socially responsible. So here is where ESG funds, if they are properly managed, if they are properly sold, and I mean, the iShares thing, uh, I mean, I think they're great, but I mean, the timing does seem a bit a bit odd. So they're launching these new funds in a, in a week or in a month where social responsibility has suddenly become much more important. But if they can be managed properly, then they could, there could be 
an opportunity for real change, which is, is helped by the investors picking ESG as, a, as an investment strategy. So you've got some interesting developments. So SoftBank, um, now they've announced their $100 million um, fund where they're going to prioritise um, businesses. Um, they've used the, the slightly condescending term led by persons of colour. But but it's a, it's a great, um, yeah, it, 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 that's one of the problems is, is you know, you know talented uh, black and, and other ethnic minority entrepreneurs have more difficulty accessing funding. It's one of those insidious aspects of um race of, of racism that, that that's sort of it's, it's sort of invisible but it's there and it's a it's a problem so this is a, a a good development but but then you know you look at these uh some of these positive initiatives and the question of it, is it woke washing you know this is a um this is a company which uh you know softbank has been in the news it has some funny things that have gone on with its board and uh and it's interesting to you know to see uh you know are these companies jumping on board with with a big issue um to help sort of distract from from other issues um that, that they've they've sort of other bad press they've had in the last year or so well yeah that's uh that is it's very yeah it's very true but yeah then it does sort of call into question i mean whether or not these fund managers are just slapping esg stickers on their on their funds because they do appeal to a wider range of people when really their focus, their primary focus for investing is ultimately just making more money. Yeah, I mean, th- there is a risk of that. But, um, uh, you know, th- there are, um, there are uh, people out there, there's, there's, there's the, the principles of responsible investing, which is sort of the UN-backed principles, um, which asset managers are signing up to, big asset managers. Um, so there's, there's pressure um, um, from, uh, and asset owners um, and and. Um, different types of asset owners and big asset managers to make, make sure these things are done. There's a real focus on it, and, and the, the company level, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, you, the asset managers you know, have to keep the companies honest for the, the sake of their investors. So, for you, obviously, you looked into it a lot. Investing in ESG, um, if you are, especially at the moment, if you're being, if you're trying to think about corporate social responsibility, is it is it a good strategy? ESG should really be thought of as a framework um, for assessing sort of operational and financial and governance risks that have always existed for companies. And that's probably a way of looking at it. That's great, James. That's a good point to end on. Thank you very much for joining us. Cheers. Okay, so it is possible to to play these themes. Another interesting interview there, Megan. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it is. Um, Yeah, James James knows a lot about how to invest in 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 trackers and in indexes and in things tilts and that's i mean esg tilts are how a lot of people get access to to these these things so it is yeah it is possible it's also worth taking some of what fund managers tell you with a pinch of salt as we discussed i thought you hated the word tilt what does it mean sounds like jargon megan I, i i don't i don't like the word tilt at all Tilts are used to give greater exposure to different to certain aspects of a market. So if you want companies which score very highly on from a social perspective, an index is tilted. I'm I'm using inverted commas for that. Um, for to give you greater exposure to the companies which score highly. Um, on those metrics. But yes, it is. It's industry jargon. Um, but uh, but unfortunately, that happens a lot. Indeed. Talking of uh, jargon and hating it, uh, let's now hear from uh, Phil Oakley, who I think hates jargon more than anybody. <laughs> How are you doing, Phil? I'm hot. Yes, it is very, very hot indeed. Uh, um, been in the garden? Topping up the tan? Uh, kind of. Not much today. <laughs> Not much today, but uh, I have been, yeah. Um, well, the pubs will be open soon, so you can head down the beer garden. Um, so, Phil, uh, I know um, that a report from uh, Bank of America has caught your eye this week. Tell us, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, a report that came out yesterday. So, Wednesday, we're talking on Thursday, which grabbed a lot of headlines in sections of the financial media, um, basically saying that Sterling, their view was that sterling, the pound sterling, should be viewed as an emerging market currency 
or almost is emerging market currency because the fundamentals behind it and with particular reference to um, the ongoing trade negotiations with the EU meant that essentially they saw it as a basket case and that, that sterling um, could fall a lot lower than its current uh, 124 uh, dollars that it currently buys now. I agree with that. I agree with that, but not for the reasons that they're saying. Talk us through their reasons and why you disagree with them and what you think will uh, weaken the pound instead. Okay. I mean, they're, I mean, I've not read the report. I've only seen reports of the report, um, mainly looking at the Financial Times that's gone into it in quite quite a lot of detail. Uh, it's essentially all about Brexit and it's all about how you know, the uncertainty over getting a trade deal for next year to start on the 1st of January next year and the risk that we don't get one and we go and trade on World Trade Organization terms means that sterling will go to hell in a handcart. Um, that's essentially the how I understand what this what this report is saying. That doesn't feel like a particularly new view, though. I mean, oh, you know, people not. were predicting the demise of sterling all throughout the uh, the Brexit process. Yeah, I mean, it's not. And I, I, you know, I don't want to get involved in this toxic subject. But all, all again, all I will all I will say is this: is that let's not count anything out in or count anything out yet. Um, I think it's far far too far too early to to say that no trade deal will be done. But my, my view on sterling, I, you know, I can park this to one side because what's, what I think that happens um, throughout history is that you get events which expose a situation for everyone to see. Some might argue that Brexit was that. I think the coronavirus is definitely that. And Britain Britain has been, you know, the value of sterling, the fundamentals that have been under underpinning sterling have been weakening since the Second World War. And this this is this is part of a of a long trade a long trend of decline in the economic clout of of the UK. And we had a brief sort of respite sort of from the, the nadir in, what, 1985, where I think sterling traded at parity with the dollar at, uh, at lunchtime on, on a particular day in 1985, and then I think closed at 105. And then it's gone back up to over $2, and, and it's moved around a lot. And we're you know, currently now at sort of 124. But the reasons, the reasons for this is that the, you know, the fundamentals of the UK economy are not particularly strong. And what's been going on for the last so many decades is an attempt to paper over the cracks. And certain events just bring this to light. And I think that the, the, the current situation that we're in with the lockdown, with the virus, has put everything in very, very stark detail in terms of, you know, the focus of, you know, what difficulties we face as an economy. So so where do you think the most uh, pressing concerns are uh, when it comes to the fundamentals of the UK economy? Uh, in a nutshell, I don't think there's enough wealth generating capacity to pay for all the promises that we've made as a country, particularly on areas like welfare. And um, essentially, the claims upon the economic output of the country have been getting bigger and bigger. And we have a system which is essentially eating itself. So we have more, you know, we have ageing population, we have weak economy, we have uh, weak productivity growth, weak wage growth, and we cannot we cannot produce enough wealth and enough tax revenue to pay for all these nice things that 
that, that, that governments have promised the population since 1945. What, why is that? I mean, you know, we have the city, which has been very successful uh, on the global stage. Why do we not have the wealth-producing capability elsewhere in the economy? What's gone wrong? Well, because it, because it's it lo- I mean it's a lot it's a long history, but it lost competitiveness after the war. There was a lack of investment. There was a problem with the trade unions, and we've just seen a continued shift away from a quite productive, relatively speaking, manufacturing, value-added economy to um, a service sector which doesn't, doesn't seem to create the same amount of wealth. You know, in very, very simple terms, you, ha- you, know, you used to have a lot of very well-paid or reasonably well-paid blue-collar jobs. Um, and a lot of those have been out. And this is a problem for the West as a whole, but Britain, I think, is, a, is probably right in the mire with this, in that you, you, know, you, you go from producing stuff um, tangible stuff, um, which employs a significant amount of people on reasonable wages, which means they can buy stuff and their standard of living increases. And you replace it with low-wage, increasingly low-wage service economy jobs um, that don't allow people to do that. And you then try and, you then try and plug the gap um, with, uh, with debt and with 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 property yeah so you've got a lot of borrowing to buy things like cars or or or, you know to buy buy clothes or trainers on credit um, none of which are produced in this country or very few of which are produced in this country i mean no one talks about the trade deficit anymore you know it used to be seen as a big problem and you know if you had like a twin deficit um, so, so the, the British economy is, is now running a twin deficit, and, you know, in terms of a budget deficit on the government, and up until recently, you know, a, a trade deficit. It's been, you know, it's been sucking in imported goods, and so in, in both in both cases, it is reliant on the kindness of strangers, of essentially foreigners, to put money into into Britain to borrow to to balance the books and essentially that props up that props up sterling or the value of the pound in 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 the short term and I think what's happening now with the coronavirus and we see it in things like you know the hospitality sector bars hotels leisure industry big employers of of lot, you know, of, of people, but actually not paying huge amounts of of wages, and, this... and and also not very profitable in themselves anyway. I mean, it's a sector which is you know ripe with very very low margin, low quality businesses. Yeah. That, as we've seen, are totally unable to cope with the downturn, and especially a severe downturn when it comes. Yeah. And you know, I thought, I thought it was another interesting comment. You know. On the on the Bank of America, in addition to the Bank of America thing, was the the attention that was uh, drawn to uh, comment by by Andrew Bailey, uh, the new governor of the uh, of the Bank of England, who was who was very very matter of fact about pretty much saying that the government was almost bust um, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I, I've had conversations with people who are still in you know, the money management industry talking about the ability to trade gilts, trade, trade gilts at prevailing prices quoted on screens was very, very difficult until the Bank of England intervened. And, you know, I, I think things, you know, I don't like to talk like this, but I think there's a, there's a lot to worry about in, in, in terms of the UK's ability to get out of this because, because where it was before was so fragile. So, so basically, you know, we, we're not talking about something that is entirely uh, the outcome of coronavirus, but coronavirus has essentially shown us where, where those weaknesses are. It's, it's, it's brought them to a head. It's like going into a new house 
and lifting up the carpets and finding that half the floorboards have disappeared. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's, it's a slightly terrifying situation. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier. It's funny because the rest of this podcast we're talking about um, kind of the the S in ESG, the the, the social aspect of investing, uh, and we've been we've been talking about some of the sort of protest movements that have been taking place around the world. And you know, I, I know we, we we we're going to avoid that subject, but when we talk about welfareism and what's happening in, in this country, these, these sound like you know big social problems. Oh yes, they are because everybody wants money. It's, yeah, but of course they do. But but yeah, the, the old-fashioned way of getting money money was to go out and work for it. Now you know what what are we talking about here? That that people don't want to work, or that the work that is there for them to do just doesn't pay them enough? Is this is this a, a structural problem um, in in terms of the nature of of, of pay uh, in industry? Is it a, is it a management a governance problem? I mean, you know, how, where do you look to to start solving this? You talked about demographics. Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of a lot of it uh, of what you said is right. People do want to work. People 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 want to get on. I, I you know I I don't believe that we you know almost in sort of tabloid journalism style that we are a you know a nation of lazy people who just want to sit and do nothing and have people pay pay for us. I don't believe that for one second. No, I think nor do pe- I. People, people want to work, and, and it's not just working for money. They want, they want a sense of purpose in life, which is, which is a very important aspect of, of working. And there is, there is a problem that has been brewing for the last, probably the last 50 years, um, certainly in America, but all, maybe for the last 40 years, 30, 40 years in this country. And we've touched on it in previous podcasts. And what we are seeing or what we have seen is the the growth in the power of of business over or, over labor. And, you know, there is very little organized labor now. Um the workers, the workers have very little power to exercise. If you look at the, the the continued dominance of big companies in lots of sectors of and lots of ways of our you know day to day life, um, these companies are becoming more powerful. There are becoming fewer of them, so power is being concentrated, which means there are fewer buyers of labour, which means that the worker. Can't trade, comp- can't trade as many companies off against each other, and so getting a pay rise for a lot of people is quite hard. And I think, but but I think also the the ability of of the UK economy to create these kind of jobs is not there. We we have got some sections of the economy. I'm th- talking about you know places like Cambridge, where there's some fantastic technology businesses. We've got, you know, some very good niche engineering businesses. We've still got an aerospace business. We've got pharmaceuticals. We've got some petrochemicals. We've got the city. Um, but they're, they're not massive employers of people. And there is, there's a, a huge sort of, you know, if you imagine like the sort of classic bell curve of a, of a, of a, of a distribution of, of people, You've got this big fat middle, yeah, where where a lot of people are really struggling to to make themselves better off, and that's 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 the same in a lot of the Western world. At the same time, you've got governments who are borrowing money um, to pay for things like pensions, for health services, and now they've got something like the coronavirus. Where are they going to pay for this? You know, they can't, you know, they, they, they can keep borrowing or, the, or they can print up money or they can get the central banks to print up money or they can put up taxes or they can cut, cut public spending. You would imagine you would imagine we uh, we're in for some uh, pretty chunky tax increases, particularly amongst the sort of the, the higher earners in society. You, I think you're going to see things like wealth taxes come onto the table because you struggle to see how how you can tax in, income more than you have done. But then, but then, for you know, you know, we talk about the problem this country has is that there is simply not enough wealth creation. And so let's slap a tax on wealth creation. And and you know, surely, surely this is the exact opposite 
of what we should be doing to, to get out of the, the, the hole that has been dug in the long term. It might be a short term fix, but it does not solve the problem. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, you know, we have a, we have a very narrow tax base. And I, you know, it's often said, you know, that 20, 27 percent of the tax is being paid by the top one percent. And, you know, these people quite rightly will probably think that they are, they're paying they're paying their fair share. So Sterling, Sterling, in my in my view, is deserves to be weak. And it's taken it's taken an event to say, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Um, and you hope that there is somebody out there, or, you know, somebody in the government, I think, probably or sufficient entrepreneurs out there that can be um helped by the government if they need to be to try and get us out of this you know a lot of there's a lot of talk you know i remain very bullish on you know the the potential for things like green energy in this country um how you could create a lot of jobs you could drive down the cost of energy Um, essentially build it build an industry around something that will be a relevant technology for the future. Yes. Invest but, in it heavily, whatever it takes, but to create an industry upon which future wealth can be built. Yeah. So don't print money to prop, prop up the stock market. You know, I don't want them to print money at all. But if you're going to if you're going to throw money at something, don't throw it at the stock market. Throw it into productive capacity that and, you know, and things like green energy. So more more wind power. You know, things like wave power. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are people who know a lot more about this than you know, me. We've written about this in, uh, in the magazine, the, the new future series that we're running. Uh, we, we've looked at energy and, you know, there, there's, other, there's other areas, hydrogen, battery storage, you know, energy storage, that, that sort of thing. There's, there's a lot of it. But you go back to energy and energy is so important. You know, if you have cheap energy, and it, it can create a whole thesis on the fact that a lot of prosperity has been created off the back of back of cheap and secure energy. But you look at you know you look at what countries like France did after the you know the, the sort of the, the oil crisis of the 1970s. You know they they invested in in nuclear energy and had the cheapest electricity in Europe. How much good it's done them I don't know, but they're probably better off than than, than what they were before. But I think you know the bottom line is, you know, how low will sterling go? And I, 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 you know, I, I talk to, I have a sort of very old colleague friend, you know, from the, from my days in the city and we talk every week and both him and I don't think it's, don't think it's out of the question, but you could have parity with the dollar, uh, you know, because, because of the people talk about the weakness of the dollar because they are, you know, creating lots of dollars, but currencies are relative. And, you know, I would much rather have my investments in dollars um, than investments in pounds. And yes, there are a few good companies, but I think for, invest- for investors, this is really important. And, you know, it's about trying to invest in good companies with lots of overseas earnings and also protect yourself by investing in American shares or, or good global shares. And that can be done really cheaply now through um, lots of, you know, you know, you could buy, you know, a simple S&P 500 ETF. But the ability now to invest in even sections of the American stock market, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is um, it's there. It's cheap. It's, e- it's liquid. It's easy to trade. And, you know, if you subscribe to the view that sterling is going lower, it's something that can protect the value of your uh, of your investments. Indeed. We've actually this week um, in the magazine and on the website, we've published our platform guide for buying overseas shares um, because it's not there, there are some, some complications that, that you don't necessarily have when buying UK shares. I mean, I've, I've often heard investors suggesting that 
the the currency risk of buying overshares is too much for them, so so they tend to avoid it. But but actually, the currency risk of not buying them now seems to be the thing we should perhaps be more worried about. Um, and you know, we, we ran a feature recently called uh, the world's best shares, and you know what? It's one of the best selling features, best read things we've written in ages. I think people are waking up to this feel. And actually, next week's podcast is all about America. Yeah. So uh, we can talk more about this then. Thank you very much, Phil. Um, so a bit, a bit of a gloomy one today, despite the lovely weather. But but we'll be back with uh, some positive solutions next week at America. Thanks, John. Cheers, Phil. And that, I'm afraid, is all we have time for this week. But there is lots more in the magazine and on the website, as ever. Um, I've already mentioned Mary McDougall's article on the best platforms for overseas shares. And sticking to the international theme, we are looking at a paper that makes the case for buying US small caps in our new education section. There's stacks of stuff in the magazine this week on cash flow, which I suspect is going to come into focus as the nation starts to claw its way back from COVID-19. Philip Ryland explains how to understand how cash flow is reported, and Algie Hall uses it as the basis of his stock screen this week. But the main feature, survival of the fittest, is looking at what we can expect on the M&A front in the post-COVID landscape, and who might profit from a wave of corporate Darwinism that sees the strong get stronger. Thank you, Philip, James and Phil, for your insights this week, and of course, my co-host, Megan, and thank you all for listening. Enjoy the weekend, and we'll be back again next week when we'll be discussing investing in the U.S. Take care. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.